Good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Uh, thanks for gathering here. Thanks for tuning in for those that are tuning in on the live stream. Uh, because uh, we had some volunteers step up uh, this last week, we were able to get Children's Church back off the ground. So kids preschool uh, through first and second grade, you can be dismissed for that. And reminder to parents to pick up your kids either right before or right after you take uh, communion. I know we've been getting some uh, visitors over the last couple of weeks, so one of the um, things I want to highlight is uh, the scripture reading, and we often do the scripture reading in different languages because it's a way for us to celebrate the global church and the reality that this gospel and this faith is something that is proclaimed by every tongue, tribe, and nation, and it's a small way in our liturgy that we are reminded of that uh, each week that we have the scripture reading in a different language. Uh, and again, if you are new, you're jumping into the middle of a sermon series that we started several weeks back on the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are in a section of 1 Corinthians that is uh, about to bring up all kinds of different things that uh, you just need to be praying for your pastor to navigate as I unpack these verses. And today's text uh, is, is all right. I mean, it's, it's kind of heavy. It's about lawsuits uh, is what we're going to be talking about. But uh, to, just to give you an idea of the things to come, I even thought uh, with today's sermon, like, oh, this one's not so bad in light of some of the things I'm going to be talking about in the next several weeks. And just as a reminder uh, for some of you, especially folks maybe with kids, uh, the next several weeks we are going to be dealing with subjects of sexuality and sex, theology of the human body, singleness, marriage, prostitution, all kinds of things that will be coming up in the next several weeks. I promise to keep it around PG-13, uh, but it's one of those things that if uh, uh, you have kiddos here, you might have to uh, prepare yourself a little bit for some conversations at home, which I hope will be centered on the gospel in light of some tricky subjects to navigate. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into 1 Corinthians 6. Let's pray. Lord, you gather your people in these spaces called sanctuaries, a place of peace and refuge because your gospel and the kingship of Jesus Christ reigns here. Sometimes, Lord, I know each of our weeks it feels like we're not coming from a place of peace. We're burdened with so many things uh, in our city and even in our personal life. This week we are burdened with news of school shootings and a shooting in downtown Minneapolis, even as the city is still healing and seeking renewal after the murder of George Floyd. Not only are these realities maybe on our souls this morning, but we also bring in our own situations of struggle and stress and brokenness, which is why we need your word. We need you to speak. We need to be in a place right now where your word reigns, your your son reigns, and the spirit is moving and transforming and encouraging our hearts so that when we scatter from this gathering, we can bring the hope of your gospel to this city and this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Opening question is this, can I sue my brother or sister in Christ? That is the topic that the text is taking on. And imagine bringing a question like that to a church leader in his or her office. And I want you not only to imagine that, but imagine the type of pastoral counsel that you might receive if you went into a church leader's office in the church of Corinth. Uh, I want to be able to 
help you imagine a scenario like that to try to bring you up to speed on some of the things we've already been preaching on in the book of 1 Corinthians to hopefully start to uh, set the stage and the context for these opening verses in 1 Corinthians 6. So let's say you're going into uh, the church office of somebody in ancient Corinth, a church leader, and you go in there and you say, Pastor, really upset at a brother in Christ. He cheated me and wronged me, and I want to get that man back. And the pastor asks, what happened? You respond, I invited them over, it's him and his family, and didn't really want to because he's on Team Paul, I'm on Team Apollos, but I figured if he came over, I could convince him to join my team, my tribe, uh, and that's the only reason I had him over. And while they were over, one of his kids, that's just this little devil, broke one of my favorite clay pots, and I am upset at this, I, I, and I want to get him back. I want to get him back in court because he cheated me. And I know our faith sometimes says that, hey, we're supposed to forgive, but in this instance, I think we need to make an example out of it. He cheated me, now it's my turn to cheat him. Pastor asks, well, how do you plan to do that? And you respond, well, I'm going to bring them before these pagan, ungodly judges. That's what I think I should do. You see, I know some people in this court system, and I think they can rule favorably in my side. And they, I know they typically don't like Christians, but I have friends in high places. Pastor will respond with this counsel. Well, I'm sorry this happened to you, and typically we like to handle matters like this uh, since it's on the trivial side in-house, but... Uh, since this family is on Team Paul, and I'm with you, I'm on Team Apollos, I think we need to make an example out of them. Take them to court and sue the socks out of them. So that would be what would take place in the city of Corinth if you went to see uh, your pastor there. And obviously a dialogue like that, if you could imagine yourself hearing this counsel and being in this situation, is something that shows the dysfunction of the church. And it shows what Paul is dealing with in this letter. It's a church that's divided, dysfunctional, and now we're getting another example of that in these disputes and these lawsuits. This text, and even the story that I probably opened with, probably brings up a host of different questions too. It's not only a pursuit of trying to understand the context, but all the questions that arise out of a, a portion of scripture like this. Such as, is Paul opposed to secular justice systems? Should Christians always handle disputes in-house? How do we handle disputes without ignoring real injustices that might happen to us. Those are the types of things I want to unpack. I want to unpack them by looking at five points and the questions related to those points. So point number one that we see from this text to understand the context. These lawsuits, these disputes, are taking place before the ungodly. Look at verses one and four. Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And then verse 4, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Paul is taking issue with God's people bringing disputes before ungodly people instead of the Lord's people. The issue isn't that these courts are just being led by folks that don't believe in Jesus who are outside the church. It's, it's more specific than that. He uses different language. He calls them ungodly. 
and they're ungodly because they are scorning Christians, and that's one of the things he highlights, their way of life, but also in the way that they run their own court system. This is not a judicial system that's full of common grace, where those that are outside of the church are administrated justice in a way that's fair. This is a system that is a sham, and the judges are biased. The Corinthian justice system had some of the same issues that we talked about that's taking place within the church. These are, are, are systems, and this is a culture where people take sides, where there's tribalism, where if you know somebody, you can get something ruled in your favor, even if it's not that big a deal, or even if there's not a lot of good evidence to show for it. If you knew somebody in this system, you'd have some social capital so that the ruling that could take place would be, take place in your favor. So Paul is taking issue with it, this issue, taking issue with the system of this local court in general. And it's important to keep that in mind as we go along these verses. But before we move on to the next verse, I want to ask this question. Does this mean Paul is opposed to secular authorities administering justice? And this is where you let Scripture interpret Scripture and let the nuance and framework of Scripture give you a little bit of guidance. For that, we're going to go to Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul writes this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. So here Paul speaks with approval of a justice system within Rome more broadly. And these verses come after a list of, of other verses that are dealing with how do you respond to something when somebody does evil against you or injustice against you. And in previous verses, Paul writes that you don't repay evil for evil. You do what is right. You live in peace. You don't seek revenge. Why? The reason he gives is that it's God's job to avenge and repay, not our job. We're not to be vindictive. And this raises a question if you're reading Paul's verses in Romans 11 and 12. It says, well, how does the Lord do that? Am I just to sit back and wait for justice to happen? And is that not going to take place until God wraps up history? And that's when Paul writes these verses in Romans 13, which is saying that God has set up human institutions to administer justice. These texts are from the same author that is writing in 1 Corinthians. It's adding to the nuance and the complete framework of Scripture. In general, if you look at all of Scripture, it is the role of governing authorities to administer justice, and we should seek that justice through those institutions rather than taking vengeance in our own hands. That's what Romans uh, 12 and 13 are unpacking. But in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a particular local court system that's corrupt, and that's not fair. And so his wisdom in Corinth is different than his wisdom in Romans. And even if the local court in uh, Corinth was just and was good, Paul gives another detail as to why these disputes shouldn't go before the court. That gets us to point two. These disputes are trivial cases. Look at verse two. 
Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? What kinds of cases are these Christians, these disputes, are, are bringing up against one another? What, are they, what, are, what do they have against one another? And Paul calls them trivial cases. In other words, we're talking about issues that would be the equivalent of a small claims court. That type of, this is the type of court that would handle the type of trivial cases that are going on here. The issues are civil in nature, not criminal. It's the type of thing that would go before Judge Judy on a TV court if they had those sort of things back then. So that's what Paul is dealing with. It's adding more to the context. You have an ungodly local court system, and you have Christians that don't have the level of disputes that's considered criminal. These are disputes that are civil in nature. These are trivial, small claims court types of things, which raises this question. Do Christians handle every type of injustice within the church? We cannot use this text and these verses to justify handling every dispute within the church in-house. We can't do that. Here is a point, again, where this context matters, that he says that it's trivial cases, that he says that it matters, all right? He's not dealing with criminal cases. If he was dealing with criminal cases, he probably would sound a little bit more like he sounds like in Romans 13. And it's important to make this distinction because the American church in this moment of history has been so bad at reporting, for example, abuse to the authorities that should be handling those types of criminal matters. So let me be clear, because this is important in our historical moment. This text and this set of verses in no way says reports of abuse should ha be handled within the church. Why? Because abuse is not a trivial case. It's not a trivial matter. It's a type of injustice that has a lifelong impact on somebody. It's something that ought to be investigated by those trained to do so, and we should seek justice within our own governing authorities when it's reported. We're going to see a little later in this text that Paul is concerned about how this situation in 1 Corinthians 6 is playing out because he says it's destroying Christian witnesses. Yet we must remember that there's more than one way to destroy Christian witness. And these abuse scandals that the church has been rocked with in the American church is a major reason why a lot of people have given up on the church. And let me be clear, they're not giving up on the church because they're offended by the gospel. They're giving up on the church because of an inconsistency with what we preach and how we have handled these matters of injustice. So I want to be clear at this point in the text that this type of passage in no way justifies not reporting some crim something criminal happening within your church to governing authorities. This text is dealing with trivial cases. Number three, the disputes could be settled by a Christian mediator. Look at verses two through five. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. 
It is, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So the easiest emphasis that uh, there is to see here in the, these verses is that the, the disputes are happening between believers. It's not occurring between a Christian and a neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. It's not something that's happening between colleagues at work or strangers who experience road rage on the road because somebody's donkey cut them off. That's not what's happening here. This is a dispute between brothers and sisters in Christ Within the church, this is a family matter when these matters of trivial cases are coming up. It reminds me of how there, there's kind of just this general wisdom that we all have on depending on the nature of your relationship with somebody, it determines a little bit how uh, you might have to take a unique approach to something. I remember having a coworker uh, of mine, uh, not in the church, this was when I worked at a coffee house, where she recently got married, she got in a fight with her husband, it was a trivial thing that they were fighting over, and uh, she, she left the, the place that she lived and went home to mom, and she was going to sleep over there because she couldn't believe her husband did this, that, or the other thing, and you know what her mom said? She said, I'm not, I'm not mediating this, this is your problem, you're married now. This isn't just some stranger that you had a dispute with. This is your husband. Go back home and figure it out. That's kind of the general idea here, is that there's this sense of gravity, because these are brothers and sisters in Christ. The, the covenant that we have with one another is serious, and it should be, be grounded in love and patience and peace, not just this eagerness to just, just go to an outside authority to figure out a trivial case. But there's also a bigger point Paul is making here that requires some heavy theological lifting by looking at a little bit of more background to understand what he's saying. Paul is making a very snarky theological point to these people in Corinth. And he points to this end-time reality that Scripture talks about where it mentions that God's people will judge the world in Christ. Now, before you get too excited in your second career that's coming as a job, uh, judge in the eschatology, let me paint the picture of what's probably going on here, okay, because it's not quite like that. The scriptures do take a uh, picture of something that takes place where God wraps up history, and God's people are there, and God's Son is judging the living and the dead. But we are participating in that in not a direct way. Just as we participate in the resurrection in Christ, so too God's people will participate in the last judgment as those who have been declared innocent because of the work of Christ. It occurs in Christ, in union with Christ. It's the Lord's power that raises the dead, and it's the Lord's authority that is truly judging the world. And if we are truly his people, his humble people, saved by grace, then there is a sense that Scripture talks about that we as Christ's body, we are corporately participating in judgment under the headship of Christ, who is the true judge. We sit at the judge's table while he is still ruling from the bench. That's kind of the picture that Scripture talks about, okay? Now, Paul is taking that big picture theological framework and essentially mocks the church of Corinth with these questions. He's essentially saying that, I thought we all believed that in the end that we get to be the ones sitting in judgment, not only of human beings, but also of angels. But you're so incompetent that you don't even have somebody right now that can judge within the church on these trivial matters if this is what it's going to be like in the end of days? Like, you don't have one person in your church 
in light of what the reality will be in the end of days that can handle and judge these cases in a wise and humble way. And this brings up the question, how do we know that our church leaders are competent enough to handle these situations? And here I just want to point back for uh, many of you that were here last week. And we, we, we took some time and we, we read 1 Corinthians 3, which is an example of how Scripture talks about the character of church leaders. And in that case, it was elders, it was deacons, and that was the emphasis of that text. And something about those texts, and I was making this case, shows how ordinary the description is. Your church leaders should be people of peace. They should be humble, quick to forgive, right? Not addicted. Like all these, these things that are impacting where you're just saying that's just a healthy Christian. And that's the point. Put people of high character, of humble disposition in these positions to be able to handle them. Put people in church leadership that have wisdom to deal with these tricky matters that are motivated by love, driven by unity, and also humble enough to know, and this is key, humble enough to know when the dispute is way above their pay grade and they need some help to figure out how to deal with it. It is very important for the unity and peace of the church to have competent, godly, humble church leaders. Fourth point, these lawsuits are a bad witness. Look at verses 5 through 6. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? These lawsuits are a bad witness of the city that this church in Corinth is trying to reach. Jesus taught that the world would know that we are Christians by our love and by our unity. And these lawsuits are not coming from that posture of love and unity and humility. In fact, it mirrors the way that these ungodly cultures of Corinth operate, not how the church should operate. If you have something against a brother or a sister and you have the ability, status, and means to take them to court, then you do it. That's what's driven driving those in the church of Corinth. There's this vindictiveness that they have against one another. There's this, this, this way that they view one another, that they're a part of a different team and a different tribe, so therefore I can really nuke you with a lawsuit if I want to. And that's the type of baggage, that's the type of witness that is going out into the world, and it's contrary to the ways of Jesus and confuses the real witness of the gospel to our world. And this might raise a question at this point as we're getting this deep into the text. Is this really a problem within the modern church? I mean, are we really suing one another and taking each other to court constantly over trivial matters? And one of the things I I want you to see, it's similar how Jesus talks about in the Servant of the Mouth that uh, you might say, like, well, I'm not a murderer, but then he walks it back and looks at hate. Or you say, I've never committed adultery, but then he walks it back and says, what about lust? And one of the things we always have to look out and look for, and this is what we already see in this letter of 1 Corinthians, is that the ingredients that would bear the fruit of these types of disputes were already there, and it's probably been just, 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 just being cooked up in this church for a very, very long time. This is a church that's already been full of gossip, vindictiveness, 
an eagerness to break fellowship with those that are not in your own tribe. These are the things that were already taking place within the church, and so no wonder it gets to a point where they're willing just to take a trivial matter to an ungodly court just because they can and just because they know that they can beat you and humiliate you in that court. It didn't just arrive there overnight. There were already things like gossip and division and tribalism that led them there. And those are precisely the things that still happen in the church. Gossip, division, vindictiveness, holding a grudge against the brothers and sisters in Christ. If you've ever been there, if you've ever had that in your heart, then you are indeed capable of uh, taking a brother or sister in Christ to court just to sue them because you can, even if you know you could work it out in a personal situation. Number five. The lawsuits are a defeat. Look at verses 7 through 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. The reality of these lawsuits means that things are terribly wrong within this church. Even if one of these Christians goes on to win a lawsuit against a brother and sister in Christ, they are already defeated. They've already lost, even if they've won in court, because there's, it's such a bad witness in Christ. They've already caused division in Christian fellowship. So Paul here asks a series of questions to drive home his point. How important is it for you to win this dispute? Is it worth jeopardizing Christian witness and fellowship you have in the church? Even if you have been legitimately wrong, Paul is arguing here, in one of these trivial situations, wouldn't you rather have been wronged and cheated but respond with patience and grace for the sake of God's glory and the good of the church? Wouldn't that have been a better response? Instead, you're responding to this maybe even legitimate situation where you've been wronged and you've been cheated, but you yourself respond by doing wrong to that other person and trying to cheat them by bringing in this dispute in front of ungodly courts. And this raises a question because this language gets really close to the teachings of Jesus on turn the other cheek. Give them your other cloak if they, if they steal yours, right? This is the, 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 the same type of theology here. And it, it's one of those types of teachings in Scripture that is really difficult to wrap our minds around because it's hard to know where is the balance between legitimately being patient and seeking forgiveness and justice in a situation and not being turned into a doormat, right? What's the balance between those things? What's the balance of being a, a Christian that turns the other cheek but also just doesn't let injustice reign in your city or in your church? I think one of the greatest examples of how to handle these matters and to think about those types of questions comes from uh, the civil rights movement led by many Christian leaders and ministers such as Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. I was reading a piece, uh, uh, piece of writing by Rosa Parks where she was talking about that moment that led to her uh, in the bus. And she wrote about how tired she was of the injustice that she was seeing in the world and how she had to face fear constantly because of this, these realities in her world. And she wanted to know how to face these injustices without fear, but rather standing against them, or in her case, sitting in the face of injustice. And she wrote, quote, 
about the moment that she sat on that bus to oppose the injustices of her world. She said, quote, I felt the Lord would give me strength to endure whatever I had to face. God did away with all my fear. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. Love, not fear, must be our guide. She's reflecting something that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. preached once in a sermon called Loving Your Enemies, where he said, quote, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And this type of example from the Civil Rights Movement shows us how love can transform even injustice in the public world. And it's the same type of power at the Christian's disposal when you are facing a dispute with a brother or sister in Christ that is of trivial status as well. Facing disputes or injustice in a way that is marked by love is one of the ways that you can protect your soul from losing it. Because when you face the diseases of injustice and hate, one of the key things you need to do when you face these things is that you make sure that's, that disease doesn't infect you as well. And the way to get a vaccine against that is the vaccine of gospel love and patience and endurance in the face of these matters. And if it's good enough to push back on injustice in our society, then it's a good enough power, this power of love, to bring into maybe trivial disputes that you have with a brother and sister in Christ. Let me conclude uh, with the verses that are coming for next week. And these verses next week, I'm going to take an entire uh, Sunday to talk about one of the, the vices or sins that's briefly mentioned in these verses, and it's one of those types of hot topics culturally that's going to take an entire sermon uh, to unpack. In fact, I think it was about it was several years ago now that I took nine Sundays to unpack the same topic, but this time we're just going to do one sermon. But I want to put the whole thing in context and why Paul ends with verses 9 through 11 uh, and what he's after here. The point he's making in verses 9 through 11 is he is tying this issue of lawsuits in the church to broader issues that are already happening, happening within the church of Corinth. Paul says, effectively, if you read these verses, that wrongdoers do not inherit the kingdom of God. Folks who are sexually immoral, who sleep with their stepmom, for example, without ever repenting or ask for forgiveness, do not inherit God's kingdom. Thieves and the greedy and slanderers and swindlers do not enter the kingdom of God, Paul writes. And that part of the list, the greedy, the slanderers, the swindlers, those are the types of things happening within this church that is giving rise to these specific disputes and lawsuits. The lawsuits, as I've already said, are the tip of the iceberg. And underneath are Christians who are already stealing from one another. They're already cutting down others who are not part of their tribe. They already are using their status just because they can so that they can uh, bring a court case against another brother and sister in Christ. And rather than say, Paul, Paul doesn't say this, he doesn't say, therefore you're all going to hell because this is how you behave. That's not the conclusion he makes when he says that these are you. You're a bunch of swindlers, you're greedy, you're sexually immoral. He says this instead in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Paul is saying here, the sins behind these lawsuits are not what belongs to your status in Christ. These are the types of things that belong to your former status of who you were outside of Christ, before Christ. That's who you were. You were the type of person that was greedy and would swindle somebody else. But that's not who you are now. Now you're a person that's been washed, that's been set apart, that's been sanctified and justified in Christ and in union with Christ. And he's pleading with them, be consistent with who you are. This is not gospel people. You've been given grace, you've been saved, but you act like a people that have never been exposed to the power of the resurrection, but you have. He's pleading with them to start to live consistently with the message of the gospel. And that's the type of theme that is going to be brought into the next several weeks as we dive into some tricky issues dealing with sexuality and marriage and singleness and all kinds of other things. We will get there. Let's now turn to a time of gathering at this table and responding in song.